KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. I don't know if you're like me, but I lose count of how many times a day I mindlessly scroll through social media, taking in all the bad news and then just feeling stressed out. Well, it turns out there's a word for it, and it's called doom scrolling. There have already been a lot of problems associated with social media, but now there's the coronavirus pandemic, social movements, and we're on the heels of a presidential election. So, how do you stop doom scrolling? And is social media even good for you? Dr. Melissa Hunt is a clinical psychologist and the associate director of clinical training at the University of Penn. She joins the podcast to talk about social media and our mental health in 2020. I keep hearing during COVID-19 this term doom scrolling. Basically, Mm -hmm. right, it's when you scroll through Facebook, Twitter, whatever platform, and just keep seeing bad news after bad news. Have you Mm -hmm. heard about doom scrolling? And can you talk about the link between social media and people's moods, especially right now? Sure, that's a really big question. Yes, I have heard of doom scrolling actually from you. And so I looked it up this morning and actually found a very nice article um, in which a former student of mine was was quoted at length (laughs) about the deleterious effects of doom scrolling on mood. I myself have a have a, a program of research examining the impact of social media use in general on the mood and psychological well-being of young adults. And we really do have a pretty clear sense of how social media can be used in ways that is adaptive and really helps people feel more connected and ways in which social media can be used that is really, really maladaptive and makes people feel pretty terrible. And the bottom line is that particularly in the era of COVID-19, but this is true in general, using social media as a way to connect with friends. And when I say the word friends, I mean actual friends, people who you actually know from multiple in-person connections, people who you like, people who you want to sustain a relationship with. When you use social media to connect with friends, it helps people feel less lonely, less depressed. They feel more hooked in and their self-esteem is a little bit higher. And they just feel more supported in general by their social environment. And I think in the age of COVID, with everybody sheltering in place, that is actually an incredibly important role for social media to play in helping us stay connected and stay really feeling like we're part of the social web of our lives, even when we can't see people in person. On the other hand, we also know that using social media passively that is scrolling randomly through news feeds and clicking on links and using social media to follow strangers, influencers, celebrities, people who we really don't know, people who are three or four steps removed within a social network, but we've never actually met them, actually makes people feel terrible. That using social media that way makes people feel lonely and is likely to make people feel more depressed. And in particular, in the era of COVID, following news stories that are not directly relevant or actionable to you and your choices in your community 
is just going to make you feel depressed and anxious and overwhelmed. And it's a really terrible idea. Well, I feel like that's everything that's going on right now, though. Mm-hmm. And um, I was reading, too, that both Facebook and Twitter are saying that there's more people than normal using their platforms during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They recently mm-hmm. put out some numbers. Twitter said uh, there's a 24% daily increase in the first quarter. And Facebook said they had a 27% increase. Why Why do you think people are being attracted to social media right now and this constant stream of information? Well, I think that it's sort of obvious that when people are stuck at home and can't get together with friends, they're going to try to reach out to stay feeling connected. So again, I think there are some very positive ways in which social media can be used during the lockdown to help us reach out and be connected. In fact, many people have talked about a sort of funny silver lining in the pandemic that they're reaching out to family, for example, more often. You know, I can personally attest that, you know, in the first couple of months of the pandemic, I spoke to my parents and my oldest son, you know, who live in other states far more often than I normally do. And it was actually quite lovely to be able to feel that sense of connection to people and not take those those relationships and those people for granted. So I think there are some very positive ways that the social media platforms have provided a way for people to stay connected in a time when we would otherwise be feeling very socially isolated. On the other hand, I also think that the state of the world right now is very uncertain. It's very frightening. There are lots of terrible things happening. And in situations of terrible uncertainty like this, it is very, very tempting. It is a natural human instinct to try to get information that will provide us with some sense of certainty and will inform our choices and our behavior in good and helpful ways. Unfortunately, the way that social media news feeds tend to work is that a lot of the news that you're going to see is actually not local. It's not particularly relevant. It's not necessarily directly actionable. And of course, one of the biggest problems with news obtained from social media is that it's not verified and it's often false or deeply misleading or extremely polarizing or politically motivated. And so if people are going on social media to try to figure out, is it safe for me to go to a restaurant? Is it safe for me to fly a couple of hours to go see family or to take a vacation? Social media news feeds are really not the right place to try to get that information. Instead, what you're going to get is really scary stories about, you know, hospitals in other cities or death rates in, you know, another state that's very far away or lack of ventilators in Arizona. And that's just really not relevant to somebody in eastern Pennsylvania. (laughs) So it's not actionable. It's scary and upsetting, and it will fuel the fire for wanting to try to find more information to get something that feels more certain or more reassuring. But it's actually not helpful. So my advice to all of my patients and to my students throughout all of this has been, if a news story is upsetting you and it is not local and it is not actionable, stop reading it. 
and really try to limit your news consumption 15, 20 minutes per day tops and make sure that what you're reading is accurate from a reputable source and is actionable for you in your life. Those are good tips. Stop that never-ending cycle. Yep. Um, can mm-hmm. you maybe break down social media a little bit? Does does it actually affect people differently depending on age, gender, etc.? Sure. There is some research showing that, you know, for example, this would not be surprising at all, but Instagram use by young women tends to make them feel pretty terrible about their own body image, for example, whereas men don't seem to be as affected nearly as much by that. So many of the the vulnerabilities that you might see in a particular population, some of those are just going to be exacerbated on social media fear of missing out, social comparison, looking at someone else's life and it seems infinitely cooler and more fun and more interesting than your life. All of those things, particularly with Instagram, are are really very problematic, especially for people who are a little bit vulnerable to feeling low self-esteem or not feeling great about themselves. And that's, again, a place where following strangers becomes particularly problematic, whereas following friends that you actually know is less likely. It still triggers some of that, especially if you see a post about, you know, three of your friends out having a fun social distancing picnic with each other and you weren't invited, right? That, that, can, be, that can be hurtful and upsetting to people. So, yes, the platforms matter. There are also have been huge generational shifts in who tends to use which platform. So kids under the age of 18 at this point have, have fled Facebook and really rely on, on platforms like Snapchat much more frequently. So there's been a huge demographic change. The average age of Facebook users has gone up pretty dramatically in the last few years, whereas newer platforms like Snapchat tend to have a younger demographic that utilizes them. So sure, it you know a lot of it depends on who you are, which platform you're using, and what you're using it for. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a little bit about what people can do to stop doom scrolling or different things. Mm-hmm. And one thing I actually did on Instagram is I tried to follow more positive accounts, like they have good mm-hmm. news. Is there a way that people can still use social media and not doom scroll or get sucked in? So I think there are two answers to that. Yes is the short answer. There are definitely ways to to modify or manage your own social media use so that it becomes a more positive thing in your life and less maladaptive. One of the first things that people need to do is engage in some self-monitoring. That is to say, they actually need to keep track of how much time they're spending. In the studies that I've done, we often ask people to estimate how much time they think they spend on social media, and then we actually track objectively from things like the battery app on the iPhone or a simple app tracker that you can download onto an Android phone. And we have people actually keep track of how much time they are in fact spending. People dramatically underestimate how much time they're actually spending and are often shocked when they see the usage reported for the last 24 hours or for the last week. They're, they're just blown away by how much time has gone down the rabbit hole. So simply becoming aware, using an app tracker, using your battery tracker to actually 
show yourself every single day, okay, how much social media did I actually consume today? How much time did I spend? And then the rule is limit yourself to less than an hour. You should never spend more than 60 minutes in a day. And really closer to 30 is probably better for people. Just don't spend more than an hour on social media. So that's rule number one. Rule number two is also part of self-monitoring. And it really has to do with checking, doing a gut check with yourself about how you feel when you stop using social media. That is to say, you've been on your phone for a while, you've been maybe doom scrolling, and you finally get yourself to put your phone down. Ask yourself in that moment, how do I feel right now? And do I feel better or worse than I did before I picked up my phone and read all those stories? And if the answer is that you feel worse, maybe you should stop doing it. (laughs) But it's amazing how rarely people even ask themselves that question and really consciously try to evaluate, okay, what is my mood like now? And what was my mood like before I did this? And is there a difference? So that's important. And the final piece of advice is don't do it late at night. And for God's sake, don't do it in bed. Um, You're going to disrupt your sleep with the blue spectrum light from your phone. You're going to get yourself anxious and agitated. It's not a good way to unwind at the end of the day. I strongly recommend that people do not even bring their phones into their bedroom. Plug your phone in in the kitchen and leave it there until you get up in the morning. Do not bring it into the bedroom. And for people who use their phones as their alarm clocks, I suggest that you go out to Target or Walmart or CVS and buy yourself a $12 digital alarm clock. (laughs) Don't use your phone for that. Really don't have your phone in the bedroom. It's distracting. It disrupts sleep. It makes people anxious. And it's just not a good thing to have right before you go to sleep. I do. I do feel a little personally attacked by some of these things, but I definitely I think, you know, it's it's like a generational thing, though, too. It's so hard to disconnect. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. already mentioned some of the positives. I mean, you know, people were doing Zoom game nights at the beginning of Mm -hmm. this whole thing. And absolutely. And happy hours and all sorts of things. And those are great ways to stay connected. Mm -hmm. And If you can, I mean, I feel like this social media issue is maybe becoming a big thing. You mentioned that you're talking about it with some of your clients and uh, your students. Mm -hmm. Are there any other concerns that you guys are looking into as well? Like, how do you think this time, this quarantine and people's mental health, how do you think this is going to be remembered when kind of looking back at this? Well, that's a great question. I think we're going to be unpacking the impact of all of this for, you know, years and years and years to come. There's been a huge amount of loss. Let's not, you know, forget that many, many people, well over 100,000 people have lost their lives. That means a lot of people have lost family members. Millions of people have lost their livelihood. Millions more are faced with the possibility of eviction and bankruptcy and and a plunge into poverty. There are some very, very real, very, very difficult consequences of this pandemic that are that are going to play out in people's lives in very concrete ways for a long time. There have also been a lot of intangible losses. 
all of the high school and college students who didn't get to have a graduation ceremony, all of the weddings and anniversary parties and bridal showers and christenings that had to be postponed, all of those sort of touchstone, wonderful symbolic events that are markers in people's lives, many of them have had to be canceled or have had to be scaled way back or have just not happened at all. As students get ready to start college this coming year, all the freshmen who are waiting to hear, are we even going to have any in-person classes? Am I going to get to have a college experience? There's been a lot of loss involved in all of this and a lot of grief in addition to all of the anxiety that people are experiencing. So, you know, people with health anxiety, people with obsessive compulsive disorder, people with panic disorder, a lot of that's been exacerbated. People with depression, a lot of that has been exacerbated because of isolation and loneliness. So I think we're going to be unpacking the consequences of this epidemic for many, many, many years to come. That's, yeah, no, that's that's a very, very good point. And I think that's something that, you know, we're all realizing and not... I mean, you know, economically, so many different layers to this in the years to come. So I do want to end on a slightly more positive note. Yeah, yeah, of course. Can we? Yes, which is to say that while it is true that we're going to be unpacking the negative consequences of this pandemic for years to come, a lot of positive things have also actually come out of this time. Um, There's been a lot more attention paid to the need for mental health. There's been a lot of attention paid to racial and social injustice in terms of access to health care. And these are all things that people are going to be attending to. Ironically, the transition from in-person psychotherapy to telehealth has had some really surprisingly wonderful consequences. As long as people have access to some level of technology, it's actually made mental health treatment more accessible. We know for a fact that no-show rates at a lot of community mental health centers have gone way down because people don't have to worry about the commute and either finding parking or paying for public transportation. They don't necessarily need to find a babysitter. They don't have to take time off of work. So there have been a lot of ways in which we've really been able to connect better in some ways during the pandemic. And that's sort of a surprise, but I think it's a silver lining. And ultimately, I have faith that the scientific community is working unbelievably hard, you know, 24-7 to advance the science on this, to give us a better understanding of this particular illness, to develop treatments, and ultimately to develop a vaccine. And I'm really very confident that the scientific community will get there and that we will be able to get back to normal. And it really behooves us all to follow the advice of the scientists and not the advice of the politicians, because the scientists are the ones who know what they're talking about. Well, thank you. I'm very happy that we ended on that note instead. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me today and talking with me about the pandemic and mental health. My pleasure. Take care. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.